Who here has a really annoying bad habit that they just cannot get rid of? Or a better question, who here lives with someone who has a really bad habit and you just wish they would get rid of it? I'm surprised not everyone has their hands up right now. Bad habits, those little things that you do that you just can't seem to stop. Here's a few bad habits I've seen, some common ones. Biting your nails. That one seems to be quite common and I think it's a bit disturbing. Cracking your joints. I love doing that one and I do it all the time to the people, to the people around me disgust. Slouching. Slouching is a classic bad habit that locks up all your neck and shoulders. Picking your nose. That's a classic child um, bad habit that some people just decide to never get rid of and carry on into adulthood. Forgetting things, like your keys or your appointments or your family members when you're out and about. That's, that's a bad habit. You shouldn't do that. Bad habits. They're so annoying, aren't they? And they're so hard to break. Well, there's actually more serious ones as well than those few that I mentioned. There's ones like procrastinating so that you don't get things done. There's ones like telling white lies so that it's hard to know when you're truthful. And some habits get even more serious than that, and they become addictions. They start affecting our health. They start affecting the people around us. And these habits, they seem impossible to break, don't they? Well, today in our passage, we see Israel's bad habits. The cycle that they cannot break. But their bad habits are not trivial, like cracking joints or picking your nose. No, let's see what, they, what their bad habit is. But first, let's remember what we're reading. We're reading the book of Judges. What is the book of Judges? It's the story of judges, isn't it? Judges whom God raised up to save Israel in their time of need. They led Israel into battle and they administered justice in the land. And it's about these remarkable, these spontaneous leaders and how Israel followed them. Well, this week's passage, it explains the book of Judges for us. It's the summary chapter, which then the book expands on and plays out in each chapter. In chapter 1, we saw the last two weeks, it was, the book was set up, we kind of got the themes of the book. Now, chapter 2, we get the summary. It's kind of like the, what's the thing at the top of a thesis? I forget what it's called. Abstract, something like that. I see, I haven't studied for a while, you can tell. <laughs> well, now we're here in chapter 2, so come with me, Joshua 2, verse 6. Let's get into it. I should say we're only going to look at the first two-thirds of the passage, and we'll leave the rest for you to read later. Joshua 2, verse 6. Joshua sent the people away, and the Israelites went to take possession of land, each to his own inheritance. Now, if you've been paying attention over the last few weeks, you'll notice something strange. It says, Joshua sent the people away. Didn't we just read in chapter 1 that Joshua is dead? Is he back from the dead? Well, no, Joshua is not back from the dead. What's happening here is we've skipped back in time a little bit. This chapter is a summary, and so it's kind of helping us to see the whole period of the Judges. And so it goes back, casts our mind back to Joshua chapter 24, the end of the book of Joshua. At that time, Joshua had led Israel into battle. They had taken all the land. They had defeated the nations. And then they had a great assembly. 
a solemn assembly where they recommitted themselves to God. From there, Joshua sent them back and they settled in all their tribal territories. As we saw two weeks ago in chapter 1, things were looking pretty good. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. The people of Israel worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua. So that's the time described in chapter 1. Joshua's generation after he had died. End of verse 7. They, that generation, had seen all the Lord's great works he had done for Israel. Joshua and the elders of his time, they were faithful. And so Israel were a faithful people, worshipping Yahweh, their God. We saw that in chapter 1. They weren't perfect, but Yahweh was their God. Now, what's the reason for that? Well, they had seen God's great works. Many of them, just imagine this for a moment, many of them were children during the Exodus. They saw God redeem them from slavery in Egypt. They saw the ten plagues that God brought down on the Egyptians. They saw the Red Sea split in two and they walked through on dry ground. They saw the Egyptians drowned in the sea as it closed in over them. They had God guide them through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And for those who were born after the Exodus, who didn't see those things, well, they had seen God hand over the land to them, hadn't they? They'd gone in and taken the promised land. God had delivered on his promises to Abraham. They had seen it with their own eyes, the works of their God. But, verse 8, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. And he was buried in his own land. That's another sign of God's faithfulness and blessing. Joshua was buried in the land promised to him, his own land, in his ripe old age. But those same questions come up from chapter 1 at this point again. Who will lead Israel now? Will Israel be a faithful nation and continue to worship Yahweh? What's the answer? Verse 10. That whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. They died. That's Joshua's generation. After them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. Joshua's generation, they saw the works of the Lord. They worshipped Yahweh. The next generation, the generation after Joshua, they did not even know the Lord. They didn't see the works he had done. They had no idea about the Exodus and the conquest of the promised land. I think that's incredibly sad, that verse, isn't it? It's one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. It seems that perhaps Joshua's generation failed to pass on God's word to the next generation. Perhaps they failed to raise their kids in the fear and knowledge of God. They didn't heed the warnings, sorry, the teaching of Deuteronomy chapter 6 to raise their children, teaching them everything God had done, to talk about God's word as they walked along the road, as they lay down, as they got up. It's awful, isn't it? In one generation, the knowledge of God was lost. Here's the first lesson of this chapter. We need to heed the warning of these sad verses. 
Because it only takes one generation to lose God's word. This has happened time and time again in history, in Israel's history, but also in church history. One generation does not work hard to pass on the gospel to another, and so it's lost in just one or maybe two generations. When parents do not raise their children faithfully, when people don't evangelize and seek more people for Christ, when older don't disciple the younger, this is what can happen. God's word can disappear from an entire generation. Does that frighten you? It frightens me. I'm not a parent. I don't know what it's like. But it frightens me when I see parents who are not willing to disciple their own kids and leave it to the kids' church leaders instead. It frightens me when they instill worldly desires for wealth and success instead of a passion for God's kingdom. It frightens me when they show by example that God's church is not something to be treasured or committed to because other things take the place of fellowship and encouragement. It frightens me when older believers are complacent to the next generation who are right before them and want to be discipled. The powerful gospel of Jesus, his death and resurrection, it can be just one generation away from being lost. So God commands us to pass it on, to pass on his word to the next generation. And so that's what we must do. We must speak the truth in love to one another. We must teach our children daily, show them what it means to live for Jesus. For those of us without kids, or just any of us, we need to seek out those younger than us. To read God's word with them, to build up their faith, so that the gospel does not stop with us but instead is passed down faithfully generation to generation. That is a beautiful and powerful thing. And I'm filled with joy and encouragement when I look out at this congregation and I see so many of you involved in youth and kids ministry. So many of you involved in discipling people younger than you. So many of you involved in seeing the, the gospel go to the next generation. If that's something that you aren't involved in in any way, then I urge you to do something about that. Talk to me if you want to figure out who you, would, who you could meet with, who you could talk to, who you could minister to, so that you can pass on that good news to the next generation. Now, it's worth saying here that God is sovereign over salvation. He makes sure His Word is preserved through the ages, doesn't He? If we sat back and did nothing, God would look after things. He's not incompetent. Sometimes there are faithful parents and they raise their kids faithfully in the Lord and their kids decide not to follow Jesus. There might be some people in this room, both parents and kids. Sometimes there are parents who do a poor job of raising their kids in the faith. Or their kids are on fire for Jesus. That might be some of the parents and some of the kids in this room today. In the end of the day, each son or daughter is responsible for their own faith, and God is sovereign over all. But God has called us to do that work of passing on the good news to the next generation. So why not follow Jesus' commands? Why not be faithful in that and be part of the work God is doing through us? 
Okay, back to the story. This is what the book of Judges is about. The generation after Joshua, who did not know Yahweh or his works. And so it's no surprise at all what happens in the next part of the passage. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. No surprise at all, is it? Last week we saw the ways Joshua's generation were unfaithful. They did not take the land as they were commanded. They made covenants with the nations. They took them to be their wives. But look at the generation after Joshua. Verse 11 again. They worshipped the Baals, Canaanite gods. They abandoned the Lord. They went after other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They infuriated the Lord. That they abandoned him and worshipped Baal and the Ashtoreths, other Canaanite gods. Joshua's generation were not perfect by any means, as we saw last week. But at least they worshipped Yahweh. The next generation, did you notice the language, abandoned the Lord. They join in with the Canaanite religion. They go, they, they take their gods on for themselves. And they do this despite God's incredible love and grace to them. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He gave them a good land. He blessed them, but they defy him. They callously ignore him and go after other gods. They break the two commandments, the first two commandments. Do not have any other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourself. So what does God do about this? He does what he said he would. Verse 14. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he handed them over to marauders who raided them. And it goes on. Their enemies defeat them and subdue them. God uses the Canaanites to punish his people. Did you notice how strong the language is and how it's focused on God's action? Look at verse 14. He hands them over. He sells them. Verse 15, the Lord is against them. At this time and at this place, God in his sovereignty decided to judge his people, to bring about his justice and wrath on them by using the Canaanites as they attacked them, as they marauded them. The other week we saw it was the other way around. Now the tables have turned. The Canaanites are enacting God's judgment on Israel. But the Lord is not finished with his people. Look at verse 18, halfway through. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. God was punishing them, yes, but he was not angry forever. He has compassion on them, pity towards them. Verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders. Now, finally, we get to the judges in the story. And the res- in, in response to his own people's suffering and groaning, what does God do? He graciously raises up these judges, these mighty warriors who, vi- who have victory over the nations and they restore peace in the land of Israel. But then it's at this point that we start to realize that the book is not just about one generation. Judges isn't just about the generation after Joshua. It's actually talking about the many generations that followed. 
It's a summary of the whole period of Israel's history, a few hundred years. So during this time, after the great leader Joshua, before the great kings of Israel, there was this cycle that kept happening that Judges describes for us. What's the cycle? Well, first, if my clicker works, it does. First, Israel would do evil in the Lord's sight. They would sin by turning away from Yahweh to other gods. Second, God would pour out His judgment on Israel. His righteous anger would burn against them. He would hand them over to His enemies. Third, Israel would groan. They would remember Yahweh, cry out to Him for help, and He would be moved to pity and compassion. Fourth, He would show grace. He would graciously raise up these judges who would save them and bring peace. Sin, judgment, groaning, grace. This is the cycle that keeps repeating itself in the book of Judges. Sin, judgment, groaning, grace. Repeat. Sin, judgment, groaning, grace. Repeat. This is what the book of Judges is about. This cycle. It's about Israel's big bad habit of turning away to other gods. And this pattern of God judging them and then having compassion on them time and time again. And we'll see that happening as we read through each story of each judge over the coming weeks. But it's not just a simple cycle that repeats itself. It's actually a downward spiral. As Israel's sin gets worse and worse and worse. Look down at verse 19 with me. These words are confronting. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their fathers. Going after other gods to worship and bow down to them, they did not turn away from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. You know those really bad habits that just kind of keep getting worse and worse and worse? You know, it starts with cracking your knuckles, but then it progresses to cracking your neck. And then you're like, oh, my back needs to be cracked. And then you start looking at every joint in your body and saying, how can I crack it? So, and then you get to the point where every five minutes you're just cracking all your joints and everyone around you is disgusted and disturbed. This was Israel's bad habit. Their cycle that just got worse and worse and worse. You know, it was sin, judgment, groaning grace. Worse sin, judgment, groaning grace. Worse sin still, judgment, groaning grace. The cycle just kept repeating itself over and over again and Israel spiraled further and further into sin. And as the story unravels, especially at the end of the book, it's horrific. We are left wondering if Israel will ever get it. Will they ever be a faithful people? Will there ever be a faithful judge to lead them? And frankly, we're left wondering what on earth God will do. Will he just keep punishing them and then showing grace again and again? Will he save them time and time again, even though they abandon him? Even though their sin is horrific? Will they ever have a leader who is truly faithful, who truly leads God's people? Well, as those of us who know the rest of the story, who have the Old Testament in our hands, 
we know that there's bad news and there's good news. The bad news is that Israel never broke that cycle. Despite God's continually unrelenting grace, Israel did not stop sinning. They remained a fallen people. They they did not stop abandoning God, turning to other gods. And even when God sent kings instead of judges, Israel went astray. Even when there was a good king, he would die and Israel would go back to their old ways. God sent prophets. He sent nations against them to punish them. He sent them into exile and he still they would not change. The bad news is Israel never broke the cycle. Sin, judgment, groaning grace, repeat. What's the good news? Well, there are some bad habits that require intervention, right? The only way to break them is for someone to intervene, to help you, to get in there, to do something drastic. The good news is God did intervene. He broke the cycle. He did it himself. He broke the cycle that Israel could not. Israel would not and could not keep God's law despite God's amazing promises, despite his grace and his faithfulness. And so God decided to break the cycle of sin and judgment and groaning and grace for good. Though they abandoned him time and time again, he chose to pour out even more grace than he had already shown them. What was that grace? How did he break the cycle? He sent a man, didn't he? He sent a man who did not sin, a faithful leader of God's people, our Lord Jesus Christ. Have a look at Romans chapter 8 with me. It's tricky language, so we'll, we'll look at it carefully. This is how Paul speaks about God breaking that cycle of sin, judgment, groaning, and grace. Paul says, what God's law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, Israel's sinfulness, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh. How? By sending his own son in flesh like ours. He became a man. Under sin's domain and as a sin offering, he died for us. In order that the law's requirements, faithfulness, obedience, would be accomplished in us. You see how wonderful these words are? Israel were under God's law, but they could not and would not keep it. And so Jesus, the true faithful leader of God's people, he kept it instead. Israel were guilty of repeatedly abandoning their faithful God. And so the Father sent Jesus, the faithful one, who died and took their punishment, the wrath that they deserved. Jesus died on the cross as a sin offering, a sacrifice that atoned and paid for the sin of people who could not keep God's law. So any Israelite, any Israelite who turned in faith to Jesus, the Son of God, they could have the law's requirements accomplished in them. That is, their sin and evil, their inability to keep God's law would not be counted against them. Instead, Jesus' perfect obedience, they would be reckoned with that. 
the Israelite who turned in faith to Jesus would stand before God, not as an idolater, not as a sinner, but as someone who had obeyed the law of God. They would be justified, declared righteous by God because of Jesus, the one who was obedient and died for them. And then God would put his spirit in them. And his spirit would write his law on their hearts so that they could and would live a life for their king, Jesus, for their faithful God who saved them. The good news is that God broke this cycle of sin, judgment, groaning, and grace. Jesus took the sin and judgment Israel deserved. He suffered and groaned for them so that God might pour out his abundant grace. And I hope, I hope that you have tacked on to the fact that this good news is not just good news for God's people, Israel. God did not just leave us in the cycle of sin and despair and judgment and groaning. No, God's grace and love shown to Israel overflow to us, to anyone who turns to faith in Jesus. Because Jesus didn't just fulfill the law for Israel. He didn't just die for them. He died for us too. So that we would have the law's requirements accomplished in us. So that we would be declared righteous through faith. So that we would be given God's spirit. So that we might live a faithful, freed life. Forgiven, serving our Lord Jesus. That is the good news. God has intervened where we were helpless. God has broken the cycle of sin and judgment for us. And that means that our experience is actually different to the Israelites in the book of Judges. In some ways, our experience is the same. We need to hear the warning not to abandon the Lord, like Israel did. Like Hebrews 3, which we read before, challenged us, don't turn away. Don't have an unbelieving heart and face God's righteous anger. But unlike Israel, we do not experience a relationship with God of sin, judgment, groaning, and grace. As his people, our suffering is not his punishing us. It might be his discipline, but it is not his wrath. No, the Apostle Paul says that because of Jesus, we stand in grace. We don't flitter in and out of God's grace. We have been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. Grace. Forgiven, freed, period. God's grace is constant and unchanging for us. And so that means if you are struggling with a reoccurring sin in your life, if you feel caught in a cycle of sin and confession, and then sin and confession, sin and confession... All of us feel that way at some point, by the way. If that's you, well, you need to know that you are not in the same cycle that Israel were. God has broken the cycle of sin and judgment. All the requirements of the law have been accomplished in you if you have faith in Jesus. His life, death, and resurrection achieves that for you. You stand in grace. You have His Spirit. 
So our struggle with sin, our constant battle with it, it is the work of God's Holy Spirit against the flesh in us. And there will always be that battle. It is the mark of a true Christian who is waiting for Jesus to come back and make us new. So know that God has broken the cycle. Know that you stand in grace. Know that all your sin, even the sin you struggle with, it has been paid for by the blood of Jesus. You are forgiven and free to live for Christ. And with that good news that you stand in grace, with that confidence that God's Spirit is at work in you, pick yourself up. Take up your sword. And with His strength, wage war on your sin. Because when you know that you stand in grace, not judgment, when you are motivated and strengthened by the gospel of grace, it can give you strength to fight against sin and put it to death. Let's pray to our faithful God who is good to us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for the example of the Israelites. We thank you that you've showed us how not to live, what not to do by their example. But Father, we also thank you that you point forward in this passage to our Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is our faithful leader and we are made faithful in him. We thank and praise you that all our sin is covered. We are no longer in this this cycle of sin and judgment. We thank you that we stand in grace. Father, we pray that you would help that truth be the core of our identity. That we would know that even the sin that we commit day to day, that it is paid for. And that you have given us your spirit to fight. Lord, please help us to put sin to death. And please motivate us with the gospel of grace and your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.